Okay, and the story begins. We're on chapter 6 of Tanya, which is page 83. And up until now, we've been discussing the structure of the divine soul. The soul structure. In order to understand what the human struggle is, we said the whole nuance of Tanya is that we have this struggle of not just am I going to do good, am I going to do bad, but who am I going to be? Which part of me am I expressing? So it's not just two inclinations that we have, but we actually have within us two conflicting personalities. And up until now we've been describing the soul structure of our divine personality. Our divine personality is comprised of, our divine soul is basically intellect, in emotions, that's what a soul is. Emotions are developed from the intellect. And then there's the way the soul expresses itself. We call that garments. There's the behavior. Thought, speech, and action. The animal soul is comprised with that exact same structure. Let's take a look on page 83, the first bold line. It says, now God has made one opposite the other. That's what, it's, that's what uh, from King Solomon's wisdom, God created the world in perfect symmetry. So however much evil there is in the world, that's how much positivity there is in the world counteracting it. However much good there is, that's how much bad there is. The world is created symmetrical. Our souls were also created symmetrical. So just like our soul structure, our divine soul structure is intellect, emotions, and its three garments, its three ways of expressing itself, thought, speech, and action, the animal soul has a very similar structure. There is its intellect, there is, there is its emotions, and there's the way it expresses itself, thought, speech, and action. Although they have the same structure, there is a slight difference, or perhaps a big difference, between the two. Although they are both comprised of intellect and emotions, your personality, that's what a soul is. If you look later on in chapter 9, he says, so, so chapter, up until chapter 8, we're basically describing the soul structures and, and laying out information. It, until chapter 9, once we get to chapter 9, we'll actually get into the actual inner conflict that we have, that we experience. And in chapter 9, he explains that the animal soul, the divine soul is primarily in the mind. It's also in the heart. The animal soul, and it kind of extends to the whole body. The animal soul is primarily in the heart, goes up to the mind, and extends to the whole body. In other words, although they both have intellect and emotions, the divine soul is primarily intellectual. It's an objective thinker, and it has emotions as well. It's human. The, the, the animal soul is primarily emotional and impulsive, and also has intellect as well. Has a brain as well. It's not, we, when we say animal soul, we don't mean the soul of an animal. We mean a soul that has animalistic characteristics, character traits. It's impulsive, it's instinctual. But they would be at different levels of the pecking order. They would not all be at the same level. Both, both so, souls? Well, no, you said the thinking part. Well, that, on an animal, that may be a lot lower than... Yeah, yeah. Again, when we say animal soul, we don't mean the soul of an animal. No, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An but animal soul would be a different... depends on what mode we're... Correct. We're operating in. But in different exactly. traits that That's we right. carry, we could be 
have, be using our animal soul in some aspects of our life. Exactly. More try to lean more towards the divine soul in other aspects of our life. Exactly. Exactly. And although the animal soul and divine soul both have intellect and emotions, how I think and how I feel are expressions of my soul. The animal soul centers itself around how it feels because it's more instinctual. The divine soul centers itself around how it thinks. In other words, what is objectively right? One is objective, one is more subjective. Mm -hmm. If we take a quick look back on chapter 3, where we first introduced the actual structure of the soul. Did I say 53? 57, sorry. Which is... You said chapter three. Chapter three, sorry. I'm 57. All, uh, I'm, still, I'm still getting over poor. No. <laughs> Too many lachaims. <laughs> chapter three, page 57. Um, the last bold line towards the bottom of the page. Chachma bina and da'as. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, or... In um, in, inquiry, understanding, and, and the ability to internalize, recognition, these three traits are the three intellectual capacities, abilities, are called mothers, and source of emotions. The, right, the intellect is the source of emotions because emotions are children, quote-unquote, of the intellect. Like we said, the more you think about something, the more you feel it. The more you think about God, the more you envision him, the more you picture his relevance and his vastness. And despite how vast he is, how much he cares about you, right? The more we think about these things, the more we're going to feel. Emotions develop from the intellect, which means the primary part of the divine soul is its intellect, which develops emotions. The animal soul is the exact opposite. If you look on page 84 in our chapter... Chapter 6, where it's discussing the animal soul. Its main thing is its emotions. It's emotional. And the intellect will just justify it. The intellect will kind of... In other words, is my mind developing emotions or is my mind justifying emotions? That's the difference between the animal soul and the divine soul. Is our mind developing emotions, guiding our emotions? Or is our mind justifying our emotions? Is it right because I feel it? Or do I try to feel it because it's right? That's the difference between the two souls. Let's take a look on what he says on page 84. The bottom of page 84, because the, all the way on the bottom. Because the emotions are relative to intellect. Now, although the intellect is not actually developing the emotions, the intellect is not developing the emotions for the animal soul. The emotions are there. But the emotions will still be relative to the intellect. So he says a child desires trivial things, petty things. You know, if, if, I, if I buy, if I get Musya, if I get our daughter an iPhone, you know, she's about nine months old. She's going to have a good time with the box. Right. If you give a teenager an iPhone, they're going to have a good time with the iPhone. Right? Emotions are relative to the intellect, to the, uh, to the individual sophistic, uh, sophistication. 
although the animal soul is primarily emotional, its emotional maturity is dependent on its on how broad-minded it is. So somebody who is less emotionally, intellectually mature, their animal soul will react to things that are more petty, will get upset over things that are not necessarily objectively worth getting upset over. Because it all, although it's not developed from the intellect, it's still relative to the intellect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the animal soul. Whereas the divine soul, its emotions are completely developed from the intellect and it actually takes work to feel, for the most part. For the most part, if we want to feel, we have to think. There's times where we can get inspired, right? But on a, you know, if we put ourselves in the right situation, we could get inspired on a divine level from our divine soul. But generally, the default mode is that you don't just get inspired. It's something that does happen once in a while. It's not something we can wait to ha- for it to happen. It's not something we can rely on. We have to actually think in order to feel. Our mind has to guide our emotions. Whereas when it comes to mundane activities, when it comes to the animal soul, we don't have to think in order to feel, in order to appreciate something emotionally. We appreciate something emotionally, and now we have to some, kind of somehow justify how it's right. <laughs> That's how the animal soul works. Yeah, I got it. it, it in my mind, everything goes to food. Okay. You know, like you, like a real soul, Jew. <laughs> yeah, your animal soul says, hmm, you know, that, that smells really good, let's eat it. And your, um, your divine soul is saying, not really. I can't do. I can't eat that one. It's not good for me. Two. It isn't kosher. Or three. You know. Exactly. So one is emotional. Yeah. One is objective. Yeah. One is intellectual. And I found um, my animal soul is not helping me out with the food. Like I just, you know, like especially late at night. Like it's like, oh, I have some hamantash still left. I go and I eat it. I know I shouldn't, but I eat it and. So I, I look at that, like I was just trying to compare it in this, but then my divine soul, I've really been working on my modaani and washing and saying the Shema, and I'm doing it every day. I'm not necessarily feeling it yet. And, some, and I question every morning, why, do I, why am I doing this? And I hope Beautiful. I get there. I mean, I've done it now four days in a row. And Esther reminds me. <laughs> every day, every night I get a text to put out my, what is it, negavasa. Is that what it's called? Yeah, negavasa. Hand, yeah. hand, hand yeah, get out my negavasa. And then in the morning she'll say, did you do it? You know, so I'm, I'm doing it. She's my, like, my personal little Mora. So, but I'm still not getting, I, you know, I understand it's a mitzvah to do it, but I'm still not feeling it. But I guess I'm moving more towards the exactly. divine soul, right? Exactly. By... In other words, when it comes to things that our animal soul appreciates, we feel it. And then somehow we try to make sense of it, we try to justify it. why is it okay. We're, exactly, well, I'm hungry, I deserve it, I exercise yeah. it. When it comes to the, the divine soul, it's, it's often the other way around. It makes sense, it's justified. How do I get myself to actually feel this? How do I get myself to be inspired? Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, you know, like like I, I leave my little prayer book. I, I have a 40-year-old prayer book by the side of my bed. So, 
one of many. Um, <laughs> and it's like a nighttime ritual. I could not go to sleep without reading reading the Kiryat Shema. You know, you, you, you can't go to... It becomes second nature. It's second nature. And it's not like the soul... It, it's like if I don't, I would feel bad. So with the question of inspiration, it, it just becomes like... Well, that's what I'm hoping. It, it becomes part of you. It becomes part of you. And um, just like, you know, waking up in the morning, you, you know, if, if you don't do it, you don't do modani, you can't start your morning. It's like, well, you got to do that before you have a cup of coffee. Where, whereas I always say life doesn't really begin until you've had your coffee. <laughs> yeah, so but technically you, you're not awake. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> but then I have to work on like, oh, I have to try to really pronounce all the, you know, I got to like really work on memorization and my pronunciation because I'm butchering it. <laughs> well, you, say it in English. You, don't worry about it. You know, like. Um, so I say it in English just to make sure. There we know, go. Do both. Perfect. It's just, um, you work on the pronunciation. It's, right. You know, like, um, you get it and you, memor you memorize it. Right. And it just becomes, you yeah. memorize it. Yeah, you know, you have these kids that are memorizing it from, you know, the day they're born, you're saying that to Musia, you know, here I am. Yeah. We've got one right next door. His name is Shimmy. I'm almost convinced that he probably has... 40 to 50 percent of it already memorized. But <laughs> you just see yeah. him like his father walking around without a book already done. Yeah, but it, you're right. It, it takes work. You know, like uh, maybe I, I was real lucky because I was sent to Hebrew school at four. Mm -hmm. It was all memorized by the time right. by right. the time I was, was a, a right. kid. Everything was memorized. Right, right. So well, for me, it's all. You know, I say the Shema. You know. In prayer, but I, you know, so, so, uh, but, but that's it's basically get. it's the via hafta that it's like oh, right. I gotta, I gotta. <laughs> but but that's what it is the more we think about it, the yeah. more we it becomes part of us, the more we feel it, and that's the divine soul. The now here's the question: so the animal soul, the divine soul, there's these two personalities, and just like we said, the divine soul has three garments, three types of behavior, three ways to express itself: thought, speech, and action. Right what I think about, what I choose to facilitate in my mind, what I speak about, what I say, and what I do. How do I know if these garments are facilitating, expressing the animal soul, or if they're expressing the divine soul? How do I know if, what I, if my behavior is motivated by divine intellect and emotions, or by animalistic intellect and emotions? How do I know what my motivation is? So here is a paradigm shift in Tanya, which we've spoke about before, but it becomes more clear here. And as the book unfolds, this concept will become more and more clear. Tanya, like we said, is not here to tell us what is good and what is bad. The whole purpose of Tanya is, is it godly or is it not godly? The animal soul is not bad. You need a drive to eat. If you don't have an appetite, <laughs> how are you going to enjoy Shabbat? Right? That could be a very holy thing. Animal thing, an animal soul doesn't mean it's bad, it means it's self-centered, self-oriented. Divine soul means it's not necessarily self-oriented, it's not self-oriented, it's God-oriented. Anything which is God-oriented 
if that's my motivation. So those garments, whatever I'm thinking about, whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm doing, that's going to be facilitating my divine soul. If my thought, speech, and action is self-oriented, even if it's not bad, even if it's not prohibited, that's going to facilitate the animal soul. And here's what he says on the top of 86. It is these thoughts and words and actions, thought, speech, and action of the animal soul that constitute all things that are done under the sun, which are all empty and strain of spirit. If, it's not, if it doesn't have a godly spirit to it, even if it's not a bad thing, it could still be motivated, it's still motivated by the animal soul because it's, even though it's not bad, it's not godly. It automatically falls under the animal soul category. It's motivated by the animal soul. Make sense? Mm -hmm. so, it, so how do you define eating, the desire to eat, or, the, you know, that's, okay. it's not godly, but... It's, Shabbos it's, it's, on Shabbos, you have a mitzvah to enjoy, to enjoy a Shabbos meal. Well, why not the rest of the week? So the rest of the week, your eating facilitates your... If you didn't eat breakfast this morning, you wouldn't be able to focus during our Tanya discussion, which is a holy thing, which is the Torah study. Right? If you don't eat, you can't really... It's hard to pray. I'll, I'll tell you a story. It's either the Rebbe's grandmother or the Rebbe's great-grandmother. I already forgot. But she was... She used to wake up early in the morning and she, would, she was very careful about not eating before davening. She would daven and then she would eat breakfast because she felt like she should talk to God before eating. She fell ill... And the doctor told her that she has to be eating early in the morning and by a certain time she has to be eating. This is what her doctor told her. So she said, okay. She woke up even earlier to daven than she was getting it. So she woke up super early to daven so she could eat by a certain time. And her husband came and said, no, it was her husband or her father. I'm already butchering the story. But the point still remains the same. He came and said, this, this is inappropriate. You need to daven. You need to eat. And then daven, because it's better to eat in order to daven. Your eating facilitates your ability to pray to God, rather than just praying so you can go eat. I'm trying to knock off prayer. Now my prayer is facilitating something, something self-oriented should motivate something God-oriented, right? My, my food, when my food motivates my ability to pray, to serve God. Now that food becomes a holy thing. Now it's a godly thing. And we'll talk about this more in chapter 7. Is it disrespectful then to eat and study, and at, the same, and study at the same time? Um, I don't know. I, the way I heard it described, these things aren't necessarily black and white, but the way I heard somebody describe it once, which I liked it, he said... You know, if you're eating and you want to study while you eat, that's one thing. If you're studying and you want to eat while you study, that's, you know, that's another thing. It's <laughs> but you see at study groups, Torah study to. groups, people always have cookies out. It, exactly. And, it, and that, if that's, mo bottom line, if that's making you study better, if that's motivating, it becomes a holy thing. could never study unless he had his music on. Yeah. So now that music if becomes... Have, if he didn't have his music, he just couldn't study. It didn't detract. It didn't... Prevent him from 
On the contrary, it, it, it propelled it, it motivated it. Exactly. Exactly. So how do I know if something is motivated by the animal soul, if it's motivated by the divine soul, if it's holy or if it's unholy? What is it facilitating? Is it facilitating my own pleasure? Although that might not be evil in the conventional sense, I'm not doing anything wrong in the conventional sense, and although it may not be conven uh, prohibited according to halacha, according to Jewish law in the conventional sense, it's still a facilitation of the animal soul. Whereas if I'm doing something godly, that's a facilitation of the, de of the animal soul. So it's not so much the behavior as much as what's motivating the behavior. Again, the whole Tanya is really focusing not on what we see, but there's something deeper to a person, right? Just like we don't look at somebody's behavior, we look at their soul. How do I know what, my, what, if what I'm doing is holy or not holy? Besides as to whether Torah allows it or not, what is the motivation behind it? What's, we can ask ourselves. We'll ask ourselves, right? When, when we feel the urge to do something, wait a minute, why am I doing this? Why am I eating this food? Now, it, it's kosher food, 100% kosher. I'm allowed to eat the food. Should I eat the food? Which soul is pushing me to want to eat this food? Well, it depends why I'm going to be eating the food. Right? I need to eat breakfast so I can go to synagogue. <laughs> I need to eat breakfast so I can, so I can... Or do I need to eat breakfast because I really like the taste of this food? Now that's not a bad, that's not a, a prohibited thing, and it's not, but it is a facilitation, a, what's the word? Facilitation that is facilitating the animal soul. Here's what he says. Uh, in the middle of page 86, where it says, Sixth of Tevis, this applies not only to actions, but to any sustainably neutral spoken words or thoughts which while not religiously forbidden are not consciously directed towards God to fulfill his will in his worship. In other words, bottom line, Tanya is asserting that there's no such thing as neutral behavior. On a halachic level, from a Jewish law perspective, you have things that are prohibited. You have things that are required. So you can't eat non-kosher. You have to give charity, right? There, there's things you, do, you can't do, there's things you need to do, and then there's things you can do. There's, there's a middle ground, right? There's neutral behavior. Kosher food is neutral. You, but from a Kabbalistic perspective, there's no such thing as neutral, neutral behavior. It's facilitating either my animal soul or my godly soul. There's no middle. Here's an interesting insight in the Torah. Let's take a look at our sheets here, text one. An excerpt from Genesis, and this will bring out our point, I think, quite nicely. An excerpt from Genesis. Joseph's brothers threw him into the pit, Actually, right? They were jealous. That sounds like yeah, they, Joseph's brothers were yeah. jealous of him. They didn't like him. They didn't get along. They, and they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty. There was no water in it. That's a direct quote from Genesis. The pit was empty. This is the key words here. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Rashi, if you look in the next paragraph, Rashi, the commentator on the Torah, asks a question. Wait a minute. If the pit was empty, obviously there was no water in it. <laughs> what is the Torah trying to really tell me here? Tell me, if you tell me the pit is empty, I already know there's no water in it. 
So why are you telling me there's no water in it? You told me it's empty. That's a, why, be, why the redundancy? So Rashi says that the Torah is trying to infer something else. Since it says the pit was empty, do I not know that there was no water in it? For what purpose did the Torah write that there was no water in it to teach us, to inform us, that although there was no water in it, there were snakes and scorpions in it? So Rashi says from the fact, and bases this on the Talmud, the Talmud says this from the fact that the Torah has to explicitly say there was no water, even though we know it was empty, it's trying to exclude the fact that there was something else in there, snakes and scorpions. And the Rebbe in one of his talks explains, when you're lacking water, we have this pit, we have our minds, we have our bodies, we have this open receptacle, reciprocal, receptacle, receptacle, we have this open space, and if we don't fill it with water, Torah is compared to water, automatically snakes and scorpions are going to come into it. If it's not filled with something good, automatically it's going to be filled with something bad. There's no such thing as neutral. If we don't do good, it's going, if it's not godly, it's automatically going to be ungodly. If it's not water, it's going to be snakes and scorpions. It's like riding a bike uphill. Right, unless you put the brakes on, you're not going to stop. You're either pedaling upwards or you're sliding downwards. And, and this is exactly what the Al-Tarebbe, what the author of the Tanya is saying here. My behavior, my thought, speech, and action is motivated by one of my two souls. Whether it be my divine soul, whether it be my animal soul, it's either God-oriented or self-oriented. It's either objectively justified, not justified, it's either objectively correct and right, or it's subjectively instinctual. It's one of the two. Our behavior is going to fall under one of the two categories. So if you feed your children, you're feeding the baby. It's not godly, you're feeding the baby. It's not animal, animalistically driven, is it? You're feeding the baby. Well, Okay, good question. Well, let's just say ourselves. We have to eat. Let's say I'm not having godly intentions during breakfast. Does that mean I don't eat? I should starve myself? We're not, we're not going to go that far. No. But is the motivation of my eating just pure survival? Isn't that what an animal does? Right. An animal lives just to survive? So it's animalistic then just to feed the baby? If my baby, if what I'm doing is teaching my baby to survive... That's animal. That's an that's an animal trait. Right, but it's not a godly trait to, to then. If I'm teaching my baby that you need to eat, because you need to be a good person, you need to be a healthy person, you need to be a productive person, and contribute to this world. Now it's hard to preach that message to a nine-month-old. <laughs> right. But there's an attitude, right? So, but now my life is not centered around survival. It's centered around purpose and meaning. Does that make sense? Yes. Good question. Very good question. So, so let me. So is is the animal side of us that that uh, makes us want to for requires us to feed a child? It, it doesn't have to be an animal thing to feed a child. Now look, the animal soul is is necessary, and it doesn't have to. All, all, you know, ultimately, in Tanya, from Tanya's perspective, the goal is to, at the very least, subdue the animal soul. 
in a perfect world, we would want to actually reroute the animal soul, redirect the animal soul. Very often we're clashing with our animal, mm-hmm. and ideally you'd want to train it, ride it. Now it's working with you, not against you. And now your appetite is a holy thing because you're, it's, you're not just in survival mode, and it's not just a, about pleasure. Not, I'm not saying that food shouldn't be pleasurable, and I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy life, but I'm saying that there should be a, a purpose to it, a meaning to it. So now, that, now it's a divine soul. Now it's divine soul motivated. Now, in other words, how do I know if something is godly or not godly? And here's what he says. Anything that is godly, God won't rest in something if it's not what he says, the, the way he translates it is, and the, the, let's look on the, the, the last paragraph. Last paragraph on page 86. And the holy side includes only something which is God's holiness can be drawn and be present. How do you know if something's holy? If it's, if God's holiness is present. How do you know if God's holiness is present? And God's presence will only rest on a thing that has surrendered its ego to him. If something can, God will only rest. Somebody, there was a, a Hasidic Rebbe. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Katsk, from the town of Katsk, known as the Katsk Rebbe. Somebody once asked him, Rebbe, where is God? Where can I find him? And his response, he was known as a sharp person, he said, wherever you allow him to enter. <laughs> where does God rest? Does God rest in this activity? If, if we allow him in there, if, it's, if, we can, if we can allow him in that activity, then yes, he will rest there. So is my eating holy? If my, is my coffee drinking? Don't mean to put you on the spot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> is my coffee drinking holy? If it's, if it's allowing God to rest there because it's facilitating his presence and I make a blessing, right? It becomes a holy thing. So you're saying basically God's around us, but until we invite him into our space, he's not there? He's not, pre- he's, he's, not um, he's everywhere because he created everything, but he's not... Revealed He's not there. within our space. Can yeah. you tell me the blessing, please? The blessing is Baruch Atah Adonai Melech Olam Shehakol Nihiyah Bidvaruch. So now it's holy, my coffee. Now it's holy. It's waking me up to let God in. Exactly. Now it, okay, so now it lets you in. Okay, good to know. This is what we refer to in Hasidic terminology. If you look on the last line, he actually says it in English as well, the word batel. You familiar with the term batel? What? <laughs> That I drove from crazy because I have it in my book. You surrender your ego to God. It's the holy side of a tool. No tool. There's no God, vessel for God's so, holiness. So the, good. So the word, the key word here is bittel. What does the word bittel mean? The Hebrew word bittel. The Hebrew word bittel. He translates it here as as to surrender, surrender. to surrender the ego. Yeah. The literal translation of the word bittel. And what I'm going to try to do, as I said earlier in earlier class, is try to wean us off the actual translations, because the English translations, in my opinion, he does a good job here, but generally English translations don't do justice. The literal translation of the word bittel means to be negligible, to be non-existent, which is horrible for marketing. <laughs> Imagine opening a Chabad house. Come to our Tanya class and learn how to become a nothing. <laughs> it's not going to work. But that's not what real bittel is. Bittel means I am surrendering myself. I am becoming... There's another word I wanted to use. Not negligible. Something else with an N. Negligible. 
My mind is necessary. I'm becoming a non-entity. A non-entity, okay. But to give you just an illustration to understand what Bittal is. Bittal, real Bittal. If I develop Bittal and I allow God in my space and I feel horrible afterwards, I did it wrong. I didn't have real Bittal. Because although I am becoming, quote-unquote, I am surrendering myself, I am becoming, quote-unquote, a non-entity, it should not feel bad, it should not feel suppressing, it should feel... To, to give you an illustration to what real bittal is, when it comes to the laws of meat and milk, kosher, right? In kosher, we can't mix meat and milk together. Mm-hmm. So you have a big pot of cholent, right? It's Friday afternoon, you're preparing the cholent for Shabbos, you have a big pot on the stove, and it's, it's meat, there's meat in there. And somehow a drop of milk fell in there by accident. Is it kosher or is it not kosher? It's kosher. It's still kosher. One sixtieth, one sixtieth. Right. There's the one sixtieth rule. If that drop of milk is less than sixty times the amount of volume uh, of of that pot, of what's in, of is the contents of the, the total volume. The total volume. That could, so that could be filled with meat or. It, it or does, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. It, it, it includes everything. Yeah. Because the point is, after once there's sixty times more of meat or of everything, the taste. Lose it, it, doesn't, it loses its taste. But here's the interesting thing. Here's what halachic authorities um, explain in the commentaries on the Talmud. Something very interesting. That drop of milk, it's called bittel. Right? It becomes non-existent. But the halachic authorities on, in commentaries on the Talmud explain, the ancient commentaries explain that it doesn't just lose its identity. It actually, that drop of milk became meat. Halachically has the status of meat. That's which means you didn't lose your identity when you have Bittal. You've become part of a bigger identity through Bittal. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, we, we were doing this class last time on... Um, we were on the, uh, the musk deer. Yeah. And the, the musk that came from the, the, the animal. Oh. The, the animal was not a kosher animal. animal. But the musk loses its identity, identity and it becomes culture. Exactly. So we, yes. that was our class exactly. last night. So, yes. so losing your identity, yeah. if you lose your identity and you feel like nothing, so we're doing it wrong, stop. <laughs> we have to relearn the Tanya. But if I lose my identity and feel great about myself because I'm filled with mission, with purpose, with meaning, and I feel like I'm part of something much bigger, because now God is in my life and that's my guiding compass, and my divine soul is driving me now. I became part of something bigger. That's a holy thing. That's what real bitzel is. It also means you're not the primary focus. Exactly. I'm the primary. I'm the primary purpose, but not the primary focus. I switched myself from being self-focused to purpose focused. Mm-hmm. Passover is coming up, right? Oh, I just scared Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> And Judy. And Judy. <laughs> and Kim. And Kim. <laughs> Murray and I can really... <laughs> you guys can relax. <laughs> so, so here's an interesting Passover insight when it related to the idea of Bittal. And in understanding what Bittal is, let's take a look at our sheets here. Text 3. 
So we have two words here in the Hebrew. There's the word chametz, there's the word matzah. Chametz and matzah. Chametz is leaven, right? It's inflated. That represents the ego, that represents arrogance. Matzah is flat, crunchy, flavorless, bland. That compact, that represents humility, that represents bitter. Now here's the interesting thing. If you look at the two words, the spellings, besides the letters are scrambled, they're in different orders, but the spellings are almost identical. That's right. With the exception of one letter. The kha, right? The ches and the hay. The ches and the hay are the only differences. So two out of three of the letters are the same. One little line. And the difference between the chametz and the matzah, the ches and the hay, the first letter of the first word, the last letter of the last word. And you could circle them if that makes it easier to, to envision. A slip of the pen, you'd have them the same. Exactly, oh, a slip okay. of the pen, you'd have them the same. They're so similar. What's the difference? The ches, the chet, the first letter, is closed on top. The hay is open. The difference between being arrogant and being humble, the difference between being having an ego, the animal soul, and being open to God, becoming bitter, becoming part of something else, is being open. The hay. The hay has an open part. Because real bitter means I'm open to something bigger than myself. So do we have a different personality during Passover than the rest of the year? If we eat the matzah. That's why matzah is called, according to Kabbalah, Kabbalah calls the matzah the bread of faith. Because when we eat the matzah, we're a little bit more humble to something bigger than ourselves. Somebody once gave the Alter Rebbe as a gift. The author of the Tanya gave him a, uh, a tobacco box, like a silver or gold tobacco box, shiny gold, silver tobacco box. He said, thank you very much. The Alter Rebbe didn't use tobacco, so he threw out the tobacco, or whatever he did with the tobacco, but he saved the box. He, he took the story, goes that he cracked off the top of the box and used it as a mirror for his tefillin, to make sure his tefillin are aligned, to make sure his tefillin are in the right spot. He used that as a mirror. His grandson, years later, was repeating this story. No, sorry, other way around. Hasidim, years later, were repeating this story to his grandson. Somebody once gave your grandfather a tobacco box. He didn't use tobacco, he cracked off the box, used it as a tefillin mirror. He said, never happened. He said, we were there. What do you mean it never happened? <laughs> I'm telling you the story. This happened. He says, there was no way my grandfather cracked off the top of a box to use it as a mirror. My grandfather wouldn't break anything. He was too sensitive to do that. There must have been a hinge or a string or something. He removed the hinge and created this mirror, but he wouldn't have cracked it off. He says, my grandfather didn't break. He built Tanya is trying, the Alter Rebbe, the author of this Tanya, is not here to break us. Bitzel, being self, uh, being, becoming subservient, becoming quote-unquote non-existent, is not there to break us. We're doing it wrong if, if it's there to break us. It's there to build us. To become part of something bigger, to be open to something, is not there to break us. It's there to, be, to, to build us, to infuse our life with purpose, with meaning, so we're not self-focused. To, to, to illustrate what Bitzel really is, the Alter Rebbe can words it better than I could. Let's take a look on page, uh, chapter 18. We'll jump ahead to chapter 18, page 217. 
According to Kabbalah, the trait of Chachma, literally translated as wisdom, he translates it here as inquiry, which is a much better translation, represents Bitzel. Chachma is represented by the Hebrew letter Yud. Yud is the smallest of letters. Again, that idea of Bitzel being uh, of, of subservience. And here's what he says. Uh, the second bold paragraph. Who'd like to read the second bold paragraph? This is also reflected. Okay. This is also reflected in the Hebrew word Chachma, the fusion of two Hebrew words, Koach and Ma. The Zohar, Chachma is the power or ability to say what is this, an inquisitiveness and openness to that which, which is not yet grasped and understood and still defies comprehension. Okay, so Chachma, this intellectual trait, is a compound of Koachma, the potential of what? It's the ability to say, I don't know, there's something beyond what I can understand. That's humility, that's real bitzel. And here, look what he says at the next paragraph. And that is why the blessed infinite light, God, can be expressed there specifically in Chachma, where no thought can grasp him. We spoke about last week and two weeks ago, the idea of no thought can grasp him. You can't grasp him with your understanding, you have to have Chachma, you have to have openness, bitzel. That's what real bitzel is. Real bitzel means... I'm not losing my identity, but I'm open to becoming part of something bigger. I'm open to perceiving something that I don't necessarily get. I'm, I'm open to something bigger than me. That's where God rests. Compare this to the animal soul. The animal soul is not at all open. The animal soul has a very specific agenda. Survival, pleasure, right? Very much in line with Freud's model of psychology. Here you go. Right. So basically, you're, you, you have to allow yourself to be broken down and rebuilt to some extent. We've got to go to the gym. No, right? well, you know, I mean, look, <laughs> look at what military services do. They take you in there and they basically mentally break you down and rebuild you mentally to work as a team. You're, you're not just, you're, there's more than just you. You know, yeah, you know, you go to the gym, you start lifting weights, and you're all sore. You tore your muscles. Yes, and you say, why that. should I go to pay money to tear right. myself, to break myself? Because you're rebuilding yourself. Right? Bitzel is there to, it, it, it's there to build us. If the result of Bitzel is depression, of sadness, is, right, if a person doesn't have a smile, well, there ever writes in one of his letters, in one of his correspondences, that the whole purpose of Hasidic teachings, of Tanya and all the other Hasidic teachings, is to enable us to serve God with joy. Here we're saying that the purpose is bitzel, that it's not about me. And those two things come hand in hand. When it's not about me, I'm a lot happier. Yeah. 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 100%. I, I, I always enjoy more giving than receiving. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is a mitzvah. Which is a mitzvah. It's a wonderful mitzvah. Yeah, but there is more pleasure in giving than in receiving. Definitely. A hundred percent. Until you're taken advantage of. Is that? Now it's real bitzel. Then you don't care. But even then, it's so I understand why, you know, sometimes my kids will try to take advantage. But it's, it's, it's kind of like a game and you allow them to do it. Yeah. No, it's, like, then it's real, it's real bitzel and it's... Yeah, I, I, I allow it, I allow it. Mm -hmm. 
Now, here's what he says next. So, how do I know if it's the animal soul or if it's a divine soul? What is it centered around? In other words, is there bittel? Is it surrendered to God? Or is it surrendered to my own pleasure? Is it the divine soul or is it the animal soul? That's how I can know. If it lacks bittel, anything which lacks bittel, which lacks surrendering itself to something larger than itself, something being open to something larger than itself, we call that in Kabbalistic terms, and we introduce this term in chapter 1, klipa. Remember the term klipa? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Klipa literally translates as a shell, a husk, a peel. So when I hold an orange and I say, what is this? Or I, sh- I say, sorry, what do you see? An orange. No. You've been deceived. You don't see the orange. You see the orange peel. And you're so used to that klipa, to that peel, you think that it's an orange. And that's what klipa does. I see the world as I see it, and I think that's reality, when in reality, in real, true reality, there's something deeper beyond what the, eyes, what the physical eyes can see, and only the soul can perceive. Right? God can't be seen with the human eye, it has to be experienced with the soul. And that's a bit so, that's going beyond the klipa. Anything which is, la- any behavior, which is lacking bittal to God, is a result of klipa. Now here's an important thing. The Al-Tarebbe says there are two levels of klipa. There's, there's, we'll start off with the lower level. The higher level of klipa will be discussed next week in chapter 7. But the gist of them, there's the three impure klipas, which in our classes I'm just going to refer to as just klipa. And then there's a middle level of klipa called klipat noga, which is a middle level of klipa. The difference between the two klipas, the lowest level of klipa discussed in our chapter has no ability to be elevated. The middle level of klipa can be elevated, but can also be degraded. So kosher food, nothing wrong with it, nothing good with it. Depending on which soul is using it, will depend on whether what will will decide whether it's being elevated, becoming batzel, becoming part of something bigger, becoming part of God's mission, or becoming or just satisfying our pleasure. And are we degrading it? Are we lowering it? That's the difference between that that's the middle level of klipa, and we're gonna elaborate more on that next week. But this third level of klipa, this lo, sorry, this lower level of klipa, total lack of surrenderness to God has no ability to be elevated. An example, I can't, I wouldn't be able to say, I'm going to eat this non-kosher food, it's going to give me the energy to study Torah. Unless I'm stuck on an island and, you know, that, if it's life or death. But let's say it's not a life and death situation. I wouldn't be able to take non-kosher food and say, it's helping me go to synagogue, it's helping me, it's giving me the energy to study Torah. It's giving me the end. It's not becoming part of God's. It doesn't work. That level of klipa is so low. The shell is so thick. The only way to actually elevate it is by avoiding it. Yeah, but doesn't the animal side then kick in to survive? Yeah, you have to have a... You don't have to eat it. You have to... You have a choice between eating scrambled eggs 
um, or oh, eating no, let's bacon talk about, eggs. But let's exactly. Talk about, but on the islands, let's talk about. It. So now it becomes uh, becomes permitted, though. If if right. the only thing is bacon, there's no coconuts on the trees on this island, and there's no. <laughs> In the army, you can't catch any kosher fish, right? You only so, catch a pig. So, like my father, <laughs> a my father was in the army. Okay. And, you know they serve mutton, and uh, for years, you know that was what he could eat. He was in World War Two, the and he he had to eat the mutton. Right. Um, I mean, you have people, in, you know, in the Holocaust, they they could only eat. A hundred percent. That's survival, and that's a mitzvah to survive. And now that becomes, but in in a regular case, there is a certain level of klipa where certain things are just the shell, the orange peel, so to speak. It's just so thick. We don't have the ability to to um, to get through to it. There's certain things that are not as thick of a shell. Permitted things. It's not. You know, it's kosher food, nothing wrong with it. So now that shell is much thinner, and we can crack through if we, if we have the right motivations and the right intentions, right? And if we use it for the right reasons, and if, and if, it's, if it becomes bottle to God, right? It becomes subservient to God, if it becomes part of something bigger, if we, if we could center it around God's mission and God's plan, not just our own. And by the way, just in, 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 I always like to relate Tanya to relationships. This is a very healthy model for relationships in any interpersonal relationship. The divine soul model, where it's not focused on itself, has a lot easier time relating to people than the animal soul model, which doesn't have bitzel, which is not open to something else, which is all about how it feels and its own pleasure. And the Altadeva writes this later on in chapter 32, that this perspective shift from animal soul to divine soul will do the world for our relationships. Because if I'm living from the, the divine soul perspective, where I'm open to something bigger, and I have that, idea, that concept of bittal, that openness, like the matzah, my relationships are a lot much smoother. That shift. Now, this won't help to things that are, that are totally enmeshed in this deep level of klipa. The lighter level of klipa, which can be elevated, we'll talk about next week. Okay. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>